0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something you're aching to get off your chest? It's not healthy to keep it bottled up inside. Don't cling too tightly to your secrets, regrets, struggles, and resentments. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com HeartWisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash HeartWisdom. affiliate links and that's another great way to support the podcast thank you for your generous attention
1: so again let yourself sit comfortably and listen not so much to remember anything no quizzes or exams um but to sense what resonates true for you, what reminds you of that which you already know. And, And sometimes on Monday evenings over the years when I've done classes, we've talked about the traditional Buddhist teachings in the systematic way, the Four Noble Truths of suffering and the release from suffering, the joy of freedom, or the foundations of mindfulness and the Um, factors of enlightenment and so forth. Um, Tonight, I'd like to speak in a different way, a different language um, that's more poetic. And of course, we have our first autumn rains this last week or two, um, and I saw these deer frolicking up on the hillside today. They were really happy that water had come after all these months of dry. And even down in the desert, there was a little wave of thunderclouds that came over during the week or 10 days I was in the desert and everything felt, smelled so alive. And then I went way out and walked in this desert and there were these two big tortoises mating, um, which was I'd never seen before. Um, And um, they were just finishing whatever they were doing anyway. And the, The female was just starting to walk away and the male was on its back flailing its legs and trying to get, get, and and so I just watched for a while and it didn't seem to be able to turn itself over and the female just, you know, started strode off like, okay, dude, I've had enough, thank you, you know. So I flipped him over and he seemed so relieved, you know, and he sat there, it's like maybe he wanted a cigarette or something, well, that was really, you know... (laughs) But then I went back and told the retreat about it, and there was a woman who kept tortoises, who knew about tortoises, and she asked me, she said, did you, um, was he on his back? After I said, yeah. She said, did you flip him over? I said, I did. She said, that's good. Sometimes they can't get back over themselves. So I felt like, okay, saved one tortoise anyway, you know. But here we are, and we're in the change of seasons, and the deer are happy, and the birds are happy. Um, to have moisture come back, the soil is happy. And what I want to speak about tonight um, has to do with an appreciation of life. When we come and sit in meditation, the point is not that meditation should be confused with a kind of grim duty. You know, you go to the gym and then you do your therapy and the next thing in self-improvement is you meditate and you get yourself altogether, right? Forget it. That's a useless project. You've noticed that already, I'm sure. Um, as Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said to his students, watching them struggle so much, he said, you're perfect just the way you are. Why don't you just sit there and enjoy your perfection? You're perfect just the way you are, perfectly yourself. Then he paused for a minute. He said, and there's still room for improvement. So there's this kind of paradox of things. But the point of meditation is not self-improvement, but rather the capacity to sit and quiet the mind and open the heart and become present for the mystery of incarnation, of life that we're a part of. Poem for you from Arnaldo Garcia. I breathe in rain, I breathe out green. I breathe in wind and breathe out sky. I breathe in laughter, and breathe out happiness, I breathe in tears and breathe out poetry. I breathe in daughters and sons and breathe out hope. I breathe in dust and breathe out the bones of my people. I breathe in oppression and breathe out liberation. I breathe in ink and breathe out veins, I breathe in Buddha, I breathe out Mexican. And it's beautiful. It has this universal dimension, and it also has the particular dimension of his unique incarnation. And so we take our seat in meditation. Yes, you can quiet yourself. Yes, there's mindfulness and some focus, but much more to open our eyes and our ears and our heart and our mind. The Buddha instructions, he said, shine like the moon, move among the stars like the full moon unhindered. So this is, sounds like poetry, but it's actually a meditation instruction. Let the spirit that was born in you shine, no matter the joys and sorrows of your life, let the spirit shine, move among the stars, move among the clouds and allow the well-being and spirit that was born into, in you shine. Or another of the words of the Buddha, Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, and a dream. Everything arises and disappears so quickly. Here we are in autumn, remember summer? that's gone. Remember the spring and the winter before? And actually, what, what are we? We're, we're in two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through 2011. Remember 2000? You know, the millennium, Y2K, all that? Oh my God, that was the last century. It was the last millennium. And where did it go? It's disappeared back into the void where everything goes, along with the pyramids and Kublai Khan you know, and dinosaurs and everything, it's gone. And yesterday is the same in your childhood. And things appear, they come trooping out of emptiness, to use Rumi's phrase. They display themselves and then they vanish. And you could get nervous about it. Oh, my God, you know. Or you could relax and say, what a show. Because its it continues, you know. It, it's, it's a dance, you don't have to get nervous about it. You can actually relax in the river of impermanence and say yes. So I want to speak about dharma or teachings. Truth has many, many meanings and beauty in the language of poetry. And it seems particularly important as the politics of the country heat up, you know, and you hear the slippery words of many different candidates. Um... And yet the problems, no matter what people are saying, are with us, the ecological devastation that we have to tend to on the earth, the continuing warfare and racism and prejudice that we find still so many places around, um, the economic difficulties that we share, and more than that, the loss of connection that we have with one another. There's some loss that you could call it a loss of beauty. When you turn on the television, there isn't a lot of beauty to be found there, Um, or look in the news or online. A single atom of sweetness, the sweetness of wisdom, is better than a thousand pavilions in paradise. This is from the poet Abu Yazid al-Bistami. A single atom of the sweetness of wisdom is better than a thousand pavilions in paradise. And that invitation of wisdom is to see this life, to see the people in front of you, the eyes of the children, to taste the tangerine or the crisp autumn apple or pear, and the you know the amazing cheese that you buy at Whole Foods to go with it, right? Or whatever it is. <laughs> and there's a kind of beauty of spirit and nature, and that beauty includes integrity and, and justice and care that we have in us, that we long for. Sometimes the most political thing you can do is to turn off the news, listen to Mozart, write a poem, make a work of art, paint something, bring something beautiful into a garden bloom. The invitation of meditation is to come into harmony with this mysterious life of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. There's praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. Anybody not have this? (coughs) Birth and death, that will come, you'll see. And somehow to find in the rhythm of this life a way of living that is present and compassionate and in harmony. The Tao Te Ching puts it this way, if you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you remember where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king, Immersed in the wonder of life, you can deal with whatever arises, and even when death comes, you are ready. So meditation then invites us to find the rhythm of our breath, the rhythm of the emotions that come and go, like the phases of the moon and the clouds, the rhythm of thoughts, and the rhythm of what's asked of us in this turning of the seasons in this time of our life. It's to find a kind of graciousness. W.S. Merwin, who had been our poet laureate, writes about just being aware of the breath. Buddhist practitioner, he says, little breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river I am learning to cross. And so you sit and you feel your breath and fears and excitement and joy and longing and love and all those things arise and pass and you take your seat in the midst of it and the tears will come um, and the beauty that you remember or the things that you hope for. In one of the monasteries where I trained in Asia, there was a practice of turning the heart and mind toward that which was beautiful. Sobhanajitta, beautiful states, Um, graciousness, the beauty that you could see in the people that you met in the trees and the environment around you. And it was in order to both uplift the heart and also in some way to bring us back into connection with something bigger than the problems of our life. And in these times we see through the media so many images of trouble and the shadows of the world Um, And we have to respond. It doesn't mean that we ignore this and each of us has to find our way to tend the world and offer what's good to it and tend the garden of the earth and bring our spirit and so forth. We can't deny it. But from where does it come in us? Does it come out of fear and confusion and alarm? Or is it a way to calm the body, and see honestly and clearly, and then respond with respect. Now, because it is Columbus Day, at least it used to be called that, maybe it's now Indigenous Peoples Day, I hope, Um, a little piece of history for you. In 1492, Christopher Columbus came and um, discovered for the Europeans the new world that was already actually inhabited by some millions of other people um, who lived here. And in 1493, the Pope declared the indigenous inhabitants of the New World not people. This is true. That allowed for the kind of colonization that took place. And in 2007, at the UN, after years of struggle, even in the 1990s for the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights and so forth. In 2007, the UN declared, and most nations were a signatory to the rights of indigenous people. And it was the first time since the Pope's declaration that that there was a world acknowledgement using the word people, not just indigenous rights. And all but four nations signed the rights of indigenous people for the United Nations. You know who didn't sign it, unfortunately, was Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and US of A. So, language is important. Language matters a lot. Because language also can be a gesture of respect or an offering of beauty, and it can be taken away. These are not people so you can do what you like with them. And as soon as we just dehumanize another person, in some way, we also dehumanize ourselves. We also pay a great price. So in London, uh, some years ago, there was a a strategy that was tried in a very poor area of London to see, to explore what might be of value there. and the test they did was this. They took two streets that were parallel to one another, about a mile apart, both in a, in a pretty impoverished part of town, which was also a place of high crime. And one of the streets, they cleaned every day. They swept, they fixed the light fixtures, they cleaned up the graffiti, they planted the planters so that they had flowers growing in them. And they tended it every day, and they went back. And for the course of a year, on that particular avenue, things were made beautiful. The other street, 10 blocks away, same street, same lighting, same neighborhoods, and so forth, left the same. And after a year, they found that the level of crime on the street that they had made beautiful had dropped by 50% it says something about us as human beings that when we're dehumanized or when we're forced to be in situations where there isn't harmony and beauty, it affects us, and it affects the way that we treat one another. You could call this harmony or this beauty a grace even in the face of pain, the sensibility of a poet. And our heart needs poetry and and art as much as the earth needs water and rain. William Carlos Williams writes, you can't get the news from poetry, yet men and women die every day for loss of what is found there. It's not about the news, but it's about some spirit that we carry. Poetry is the music of life, the harmony, the painting. Um, it's also the truth telling and really great poets speak in a kind of condensed language Emily Dickinson writes because I did not stop for death he kindly stopped for me one short line gives you something to contemplate or after the Chernobyl nuclear accident now we think about Japan The wind told the story that was being suppressed by the government. It gave away the truth when others would not do so. It carried the story of danger to other countries. The wind was a prophet, a scientist, and a poet. And so to have a poetic sensibility is to begin to find the rhythm or the harmony of language that matches the beauty of the world. And the Buddha was a poet. The first lines he uttered after his enlightenment, O house builder, O builder of the house of sorrow and separateness, you are seen at last, the ridgepole is shattered, the rafters are broken, freed am I to move among this world. So the builder of the house of sorrow and separateness, which he then later explained was all the clinging and fear and confusion in the heart, all was broken open. And you read through the Buddhist texts, um, and, and much of it is full of poetry. He goes on, cut through the strap and the thong and the rope and loosen the fastenings and unbolt the doors of the heart. Awaken, move freely like the moon among the path of the stars. So, yes, he could say, let go, don't hold on to things, but instead cut through the strap, the thong, the rope, loosen the fastenings, unbolt the door of the heart. Let yourself find ways to breathe, to open, to move in the rhythm of life. And then there are the hundred thousand songs of Milarepa, the great Tibetan saint, or the poetry of Zen Master Ryokan or, or Hanshan, who was a Chinese master, He writes Clouds and mountains all tangled together up to the blue sky, a rough road and deep woods without any travelers, far away the lone moon, a bright, glistening white, nearby a flock of birds sobbing like children. One old man sitting alone perched in these green mountains, a small shack, letting my hair grow white, pleased with the years gone by. This life is like water flowing east to the ocean. Come and visit me. Why not make it to Cold Mountain? And so there he is, and you can feel the peacefulness and the moon, and the the whole scene comes alive in three sentences or four. And then he says, this lives in you too. Come visit me. And it doesn't mean you necessarily have to go to China, to Sichuan or somewhere, and go look for the mountains of Hanshan but it means that somewhere in you this is alive. And when you sit in meditation and let all the outer things begin to settle, then that sense of inner presence on the earth that is who you are begins to show itself and a kind of ease or joy awakens. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, said, if you can see with the eyes of a poet holding up a piece of paper in this paper if you can see with the eyes of a poet in this paper are trees that it was made from and rain clouds that watered the trees and the logger who cut the tree down and the logger's wife who made his lunch that day and the wheat farmers that grew the bread for him and if you look even more deeply you'll see yourself in this paper Not just the rain clouds and the sun and the trees and the logger, but the fact that you are perceiving the paper means that you too are a part of the paper. And in fact, everything is in this paper. If you can see with the eyes of a poet. So here he is inviting us to see, and he talked about it as as looking deeply, seeing in a new way. We contain all of this. And so you sit in meditation and you think, all right, I'm just going to breathe a little bit and quiet myself and have a nice quiet sitting. But what happens? Let's be honest. <laughs> then you encounter what Emily Dickinson called the mob within the heart. <laughs> you think you're going to sit quietly and instead the unfinished business, the fears, the grief, the tears you didn't, Weep because you were too busy running around. Come up and they show themselves. Or the longing or the boredom or loneliness. And usually you're home and it comes and you open the refrigerator. But here there's no refrigerator. And so you have to sit with it. And as Rumi says, you let the loneliness season you as few ingredients can and in the boredom. Here's Carl Sandberg describing meditation in another way. He says, there's a wolf in me. Fangs pointed for tearing, gashes, a red tongue for raw meat and the lapping of blood. I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fox in me. I sniff and guess and pick things out of the wind and air and nose in the night. There's a hog in me, a snout and belly, machinery for eating and grunting and sleeping satisfied in the sun. There's a fish in me. From salt blue water gates I scurried with shoals of herring and blue waterspouts before Noah. There's a baboon in me, clambering, clogged, dog-faced, yapping a gowloot's hunger, hairy under the armpits. I keep the baboon because the wilderness says so. There's an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams, and the mockingbird warbles in the underbrush of the Chattanoogas of my hope. Oh, I got a zoo, a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart. I got something else. It's a man-child heart, a woman-child heart. It's a father and mother and lover. It came from God knows where, and it's going to God knows where. For I am the keeper of the zoo, and I say yes and no, and I sing and kill and work and love. I am a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let me go. That's meditation, right? (laughs) And it is, that's the thing. You know, you sit, and all the life shows itself in you. And you get to acknowledge it and, and find a presence with it, no matter what it is. Freud put it this way, he said, wherever I've been a poet has been there before me. And he's talking about Virgil and Dante and... Homer and Hanshan and Ryokan and so forth. So the poetry speaks of the universal. It takes our own joys and sorrows and family and work and places them in the cycles of the stars, which is what meditation does. You all know that line from the Ojibwe Indian Sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the skies. And to sit is to allow that openness, that perspective to grow in us. Poetry also tells of the spiritual journey. And Rumi, who's become the most popular poet in America, who who would have thought, you know, too bad he doesn't get royalties. (laughs) Anyway, and who wrote, he didn't even write his poetry. He just wandered around and, you know, those who were close to him would... Scribble stuff down as he would look at the moon or the stars or you know the well or the person going by, and it was like Mozart. Mozart didn't compose music; he heard it, and then he wrote it down as fast as he could because it was this amazing music. And Rumi heard the mathnawi is called the ocean of poetry, a hundred thousand verses. They just poured through him. So some of the images that Rumi uses are actually, it's kind of interesting because there are also the images that you find in Nietzsche that describe the spiritual journey, and there's three that I'll use tonight to talk about because they help us understand the the process that we go through in meditating and opening, again, not in order to do self-improvement, but really in order to become more capable of loving the mystery of the life that we've been given, loving this body and the people around us and the earth that we care about. And the images are of the camel, the lion, and the child. The camel symbolizes devotion, kneeling, The kneeling camel, necessary devotion, repetition, service, the willingness to sit over and over again, to kind of put yourself in the oven and bake yourself in meditation, to pray, to to take one breath after another, to walk, to honor what arises. Here's Rumi's description. He says, you've lost your camel, my friend, and everyone's giving you advice You don't know where your camel is, but you do know these casual directions are wrong. Even someone who hasn't lost a camel, who's never even owned a camel, gets in on the excitement. Oh yes, I think I've lost a camel too. Big reward for whoever finds it. He said this in order to be part owner of the camel when you find it. He has indeed lost something, but he doesn't know it. Everybody's looking for something. But we are like the thief who steals from his own house. We are what we seek. So you've lost your camel. And the camel, the image of the camel, is the, is the description of humility, of bowing, of willing to be present for whatever is here. And so when you sit in meditation, you learn the fear comes, the anxiety, the hopes, the memories, the unfinished grief of the past, the Longings, the great joy that might arise, all of these things. And somehow you learn that it's not so much about what comes, but about your capacity to take your seat on the earth as the Buddha or as the Kuan Yin, as the goddess of compassion, and bow to this and say, yes, this too is part of human life. Today, the measure of sorrows and the beauty that you've been given through your eyes and ears and tongue and the, Food that you had today, and all of this mystery, you say yes, this too, and the ability to be present in this way brings a kind of trust. It brings a deepening of our capacity to be present in relationship to those we care about. To be present. Are you turning on AC? It's okay, because it'll be noisy. It gi- it brings us the capacity to trust, to be able to be in relationship with whatever arises. Rabindranath Tagore, great Indian poet, won the Nobel Prize for Poetry in 1903. I thought my voyage had come to its end, the last limits of my power, that the path before me was closed, provisions exhausted, the time to take shelter in a silent obscurity. But I find that the song of life knows no end in me, And when old words die out on the tongue, new melodies break forth from the heart. And one of the things that I've seen over years of meditating and working with people in inner life is you come to places where you think this is the dead end, I'm stuck, too much fear, too much loss, too much grief, too much confusion, I can't do this. And then you sit and you pay your respects like the camel, you kneel and you say this too. And eventually, it changes. And it changes first because everything changes if you haven't noticed. I mean, you're sitting there feeling depressed and I don't know whether I should stay alive, maybe I should kill myself, whatever. Think, but I wonder where I should go for lunch, right? You know, because the mind has no pride at all, right? And even though it's having a hard time, it's also all ready to go on to the next chapter. And some deep trust grows in you that there's a life force, the the life force that pushes the green shoots, the weeds and grass through the cracks in the sidewalk, runs through your veins and the cells of your body, and you begin to trust and say, yes, I can sit and bow to whatever arises. And the story that I've read here on other nights, and I find so inspiring, comes... uh, from a New Yorker reporter about Iraq. He writes, A small unit of American soldiers was walking along a street in the holy city of Najaf in 2005 when hundreds of Iraqis began pouring out of the building on either side, hundreds and hundreds, fists waving, throats taut, they pressed in on the 24 Americans who glanced at one another in terror. The reporter said, I watched them shriek frantic with rage, and I thought, this is it. A shot will come from somewhere, the Americans will open fire, and there will be a massacre that defines this war. At that moment, an American officer stepped through the crowd, holding his rifle high over his head with the barrel pointed to the ground. Against the backdrop of the seething crowd, it was a striking gesture, almost biblical. Take a knee, the officer said, behind his sunglasses. The soldiers looked at him as if he were crazy, and then one after another, swaying in their bulky body armor and gear, they knelt before the boiling crowd and pointed their guns at the ground. The thousand Iraqis fell silent. Their anger subsided, and the officer ordered his men to withdraw. It took two months to track down Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes, from, who had been that officer, and I asked him who had prepared him to tame an angry crowd in a foreign country by kneeling in this way. He assured me it wasn't part of the Army training manual. <laughs> but he said, any gunfire would have made it impossible. The next thing you know, even firing in the air, you have to shoot people. He said, the way I saw it, the way I understood it, the Iraqis there already felt that our presence was disrespecting their holy city and their mosque. The obvious solution was a gesture of respect. And so the spirit of the camel is that of being willing to bow to what's present, to to kneel to it, to the measure of tears that you've been given, to the struggles that you have, which we all have, to the beauty in the eyes of the people around you, to the longings and love, to all of it, to your loneliness and your magnificence, and to do it over and over again and learn to trust your capacity to be present. And then the next image for the spiritual journey after we've learned the capacity to be present is the image of the lion. And the lion is the roar of authority who says, I am who I am. I don't know if you've ever heard a lion roar. I have not had the blessing of being out in the Kalahari or something like that where apparently the Kalahari Bushmen know every lion by their roar. They have names for each lion, depending what kind of roar it is. They know who they are, part of the neighborhood, you know. But I have been in a couple of zoos, and fortunate at the right time of day, I was in the Singapore Zoo, which is a magnificent zoo. And it was in the afternoon, and this lion climbed on top of the mountain that was in the area of its enclosure and decided it was time to bellow. And lions don't roar with their throat they roar with their whole body and you know the monkeys were chattering away and the baboons and you know the birds and so forth and then the lion roared and everything got really quiet <laughs> okay you know the big guys making a sound here and it's a magnificent thing to hear a lion roar because what you hear is this is this statement I do not belong here. I am a lion, you know, I belong out in the desert, in the jungle, and even if they're in the zoo, this is not my place. And it's a magnificent thing to hear that spirit. I I in zoos I don't like all that much because of having to keep animals like that in their in their pens, in their cages, and so forth. But I look at them as ambassadors, in a way, sort of whether willing or not, that they're somehow here to remind us of something that's so magnificent that we have to tend it and love it and care for it. So the roar of the lion is not one of duty, but it's the speaking of the truth. And the Buddha's teaching was called the lion's roar resting in the center of the earth and serving the Dharma and offering what he had discovered. The lion's roar said, there is sorrow in this world and suffering and everyone will experience a measure of it and there is freedom and liberation. And I declare in this moment, in this day and in these teachings that you too, O nobly born sons and daughters of the Buddha, can experience this liberation for yourself as I have. Here's a verse from one of the texts. The Buddha says, I consider the position of kings and rulers as but dust motes in a sunbeam. I see the treasures of gold and gem like broken glass or tiles on the ground. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds and the great Indian ocean as drops of mud at one's feet. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusion of magicians and look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of dragons and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. And this is really the perspective of the timeless. The question is not the future of humanity but the presence of eternity. Can we sit and feel our connection with eternity, which is fr- from which we are born and to which we are always connected. And the lion's roar is a willingness to say, I am not limited by the circumstance of my life. You are not just your parents' child. Thank God,
0: <laughs>
1: in some cases, anyway. You are the child of the universe itself. And you have each day the opportunity, every breakfast, you have the opportunity to make yourself anew. And the lion's roar is this w- w- roar of awakening to our integrity and our true nature and the freedom of our spirit. Oh, nobly born, begin the Buddhist text, remember who you really are. A poem from William Stafford. He writes, it's called A Story That Could Be True. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without telling the story, no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world, your father is lost and needs you, but you are far away. He can never find how true you are, how ready. And when the great wind comes and the robberies of the rain, you stand in the corner shivering. The people who go by, you wonder at their calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give, no matter how dark and cold the world around you is, maybe I'm a king. Maybe I'm a queen. If you were exchanged in the cradle, and you might have been, and your real mother died, maybe you are the king or the queen. And there is in this, oh nobly born, this invitation in the Buddhist teachings, a reminder of a dignity that you carry that cannot be taken from you. Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years of Robben Island prison with such forgiveness and compassion and steadiness. This is possible for every human being. And no one, they can put you in prison, but they cannot imprison your spirit. So this is the feminine voice of this. This is from Nikki Giovanni, a wonderful poet. The lions roar in a a different fashion. I was born in the Congo. I walked to the fertile crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every hundred years falls into the center, giving divine perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne drinking nectar with Allah, I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to control my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti, the tears from my birth pains created the Nile, I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert and crossed it in two hours. For a birthday present when he was three I gave my son Hannibal an elephant, he gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My son Noah built an ark, and I stood proudly at the helm on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus, man in tone, my loving name. I am the one who would save. I sewed diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blew my nose giving oil to the Arab world. <laughs> I am so hip even my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and had to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal, I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the endless sky. There you are. That's the divine feminine, all right. Watch out, the lions roar. And to sit in meditation is to take that seat of the lion and say, yes, here I am. No one has ever been like me in this entire tenfold universe. You are weird and unique and and completely one of a kind and to absolutely own your life. And there's a nobility and dignity and honor to that. So there's the the ability to bow like the camel, to honor, to practice, to learn, to face, and be open and be courageous with what comes, the willingness to roar and to speak your truth and to live your own spirit. And then the third stage is the stage of the child of the spirit. And here is Anna Akhmatova, wonderful Russian poet. Everything is plundered, betrayed, sold. Death's great black wing scrapes the air, misery gnaws to the bone. Why then do we not despair? By day, from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our breast for centuries. And yes, there is the troubles and the sorrows of the world, but also the world magnificently recreates itself again and again and again. And the child of the spirit is a description that Zen Master Suzuki Roshi calls beginner's mind, the goal of practice, is to keep a beginner's mind. It's not to get something, but it's to be mindful, compassionate, open, awake, free, exactly where you are. And this child of the Spirit, which you can feel in yourself. I mean, think about the happiest day you had as a kid. You know, the best adventure you had as a child. You can remember one of those. And what it felt like, that's still in you. And if you look at the Indian myths, there is Krishna, who is one of the incarnations of God, as this child playing with this butterball, which is the ball of the world or of the universe. That's the, the world is his toy. Or, or this poem by, I think it's Angelus Salasius, he writes, If in your heart you make a manger for his birth, then God will once again become a child on this earth. And we carry within us the child of the 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 spirit of wonder and amazement and mystery. I was the bridegroom married to amazement, is the line from Mary Oliver. And I remember when my daughter was little, one of the my favorite things was to take her around when she was like a year old or something and introduce her to the planet. You know, I'd go up and say, "This is a." this is a maple tree you pull down a maple leaf this is a maple leaf look at its colors and give it a name you know and um, and and this is a spider and it was fantastic because she was like wow look at that everything was new to her um, and in fact it is new because there's never been a day quite like this before and when you go home and if you go back and there's someone who's there that you live with and so forth they won't be the person that you left, and they won't be the person they were last year. They're going to be something unique and new again in each moment, and you get to see that in this amazing way. Beginner's mind. Sandmaster Ryokan says, In my bowl are dandelions, lilacs, and Buddhas of all the three worlds. And in every moment there is this possibility of awakening. Now with it, what's needed, of course, and I read this poem a couple of weeks ago because it's one of my new favorites, is a, is a graciousness with the imperfections of life. In the Zen teachings it says, to be enlightened is to be without anxiety about imperfection. That's what enlightenment is. It's, it's imperfect according to how you'd like it to be. It will remain so. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> so this is from Mary Oliver's new book. It's called Winter and the Nuthatch. Um, and in our center in the East Coast in Massachusetts, where we have an annual three-month retreat. Here we have a spring two-month retreat, but the three-month retreat in Massachusetts is in the fall and people, as the leaves fall down, people will stand out in, in the meditation center in the, the back by the woods. And since they have nothing better to do being silent for three months sitting and walking, they'll put birdseed in their hand and just hold it out. And after a while, the birds, they sort of stand like a statue. The birds will come. So this is Mary Oliver. She says, winter in the Nut nuthatch. Once or twice and maybe again, who knows, the timid nuthatch will come to me if I stand still was something good to eat in my hand. The first time he did it, he landed smack on his belly as though his frightened legs wouldn't cooperate. The next time he was bolder, and then he became absolutely wild about the walnuts. But there was a morning I came late, and guess what? The nuthatch was flying into a stranger's hand. (laughs) To speak plainly, I felt betrayed. I wanted to say, mister, That nuthatch and I have a relationship. (laughs) It took hours of standing in the snow before he would drop from the trees and trust my fingers. But I didn't say anything. Nobody owns the sky or the trees. Nobody owns the hearts of birds. Beautiful lines. Nobody owns the skies or the trees. Nobody owns the hearts of birds. Such wisdom. Still, Being human and partial, therefore, to my own successes, though not resentful of others fashioning theirs, I'll come tomorrow, I believe, quite early. (laughs) And you hear that beautiful tension, the tainted glory of humanity that is both new and innocent. At the same time, it's who we are. And as I said, the mind has no pride and it will do whatever it does. And it's possible he or she made a beautiful poem out of that inner experience to come to life with uh, the sense of freshness, of newness, of a kind of redemption. And you know how it is. Sometimes someone you love or yourself gets the call from the clinic saying, you know, we got your tests back and we're really worried and there's something in it and you have to come in and all of a sudden your life is turned completely upside down. And then if you're fortunate, you go in and you find out, oh, that was a mistake or it really wasn't anything. We saw this shadow or we thought it was this tumor, but it's not. And you go, oh my God, I have my life back. To sit in meditation is to do that without the scary part, right? It's to let yourself sit and come back. To this mysterious breath and body and and senses and sound and thought. Nobody knows where a thought comes from. Nobody even knows what a thought is. If you read psychology, what is a thought? I haven't found it in any textbook. I mean they describe the content of it, but nobody actually knows thoughts are so mysterious. And yet they lead you around like the, you know, ring in your nose, don't they? So you sit and with the capacity to be present with awareness as we began this evening, you see the dance of thoughts, their opinions, their judgment, thank you for your opinion, I appreciate it, and you become freed from the tyranny of thought. So you can choose, this is one that's worth following, that one, no thank you. Seen you too many times before, that's a bad you know, movie or you know, reruns already of you know, a show that I've tried and didn't enjoy very much you know or you get to see all of the emotions or all of the sensations and you find in yourself a place of well-being and beauty and mystery that says that's thought that's feeling and here we are the space of awareness you are the buddha looking out in this world and bringing your heart to it hmm what brings you alive what brings joy? what brings beauty to you? because that's really a part of what your spiritual life asks of you. You know the Voyager satellite that was sent out I think and by rocket in the 1970s and and it had a path that swung by Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and out to past Neptune and past Pluto, and now it's entered interstellar space, I think, a couple of years ago. It got past that barrier, whatever that um, name for it is, of the kind of sun's corona produces some, some field right around the edge of the solar system where the planets are, and it's past there. It's now in dark interstellar space. And it has on it, it has that picture of a human being carved on it from... Uh, Leonardo, you know, the man in the circle with his arms stretched out and his feet. But it also has a few other things. If you touch it, there's a recorder in it, and it will speak in 55 different languages. And it has the music of Bach and Louis Armstrong and Balinese Gamelan and drums from West Africa, from Senegal. And it's floating out there headed towards some star somewhere with music. And I just love to think about that (laughs) somehow. (laughs) I do. I mean, because we're also floating on this orb around the Milky Way galaxy like a great Ferris wheel and so forth. So tune to beauty, Yes, pick up litter on the beach and take care of children who are crying, but plant beautiful gardens and make a business that shines with beauty and offer respect to elders and young people and people in the middle and write poems and paint and take care of the owls in the forest and watch the deer as the rain comes and they get happier. Basho, the great Japanese poet, writes, the temple bell stops and the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. And remember that your practice isn't so much about self-improvement. It is the camel, the ability to kneel and bow to what's painful and joyful, beautiful and troubling about life and say, yes, I take my seat with dignity in the midst of it. It's the lion's roar of your own free spirit that no one can take from you. And it's the innocence of life, of your heart, of trust. As the poet Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And it's a trust in the capacity of your humanity to shine no matter what circumstance. And so I end with a poem from a friend. who used to come to Monday nights, Lynn Park, she writes, take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. These stones that break your bones will build an altar of your love. And she wrote those lines because she was When she was a child, she had something called brittle bone disease, and so she broke her bones fifteen times trying to learn to ride a bike or walk or run. These stones, consider yourself blessed, the stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road, They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. Give away everything except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. Take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing
0: open easily. You can always go there. Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support, and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com/slash Jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.